1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8, and you can keep your Bible open there. That will be the source of the sermon tonight. In a world of both print and digital publishing and media for a long time, a popular subject has been, and is, how to relate to people, sometimes called social skills or personality, interactions, something like that. The simple essence of the subject is how to treat people. That gets attention. One of the most famous such books was published in 1937, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Courses were taught around the country about that subject from that source. It is still in print and often quoted in the business world and in religion and in social interaction. Books like this address how to treat people right with very specific techniques and strategies. What to do, what to avoid, what to say, how to say it. And there isn't any doubt giving good thought to how we treat people has great value. But let's elevate the discussion. Let's go far above Dale Carnegie, who was a man who was smart, a good writer, had some good ideas, but no man on earth, no expert or current author, has a better grasp of this subject than God. God made people. So his knowledge of human relationships derives from his power and his position as sovereign creator. It must also be taken seriously that in the final judgment all of us will face, we will be judged not by Dale Carnegie, but by God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, to know God and listen to God, we are able to discover the best way to interact with each other, treat people right, approach people in the best sort of ways. Secular books may pique our interest and may repeat good teaching already given here, but there's no better book than this one to learn how to best relate to people for our good, their good, and God's glory. Can I say that again? For our good, their good, and God's glory. First Thessalonians 2, you thought I'd never be there. Paul is writing to Christians in Thessalonica, and he is reviewing with them their first encounter. When Paul came there to Macedonia, preaching the gospel. Listen carefully and note how Paul and his companions treated these people. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. You ever find it difficult to approach people with the gospel? Are you sometimes hesitant or uncertain about how to act and what to say and what attitude to adopt in dealing with people? But outside of that specific, even in our relationship with each other and in families and in workplaces and neighborhoods, dealing with people can be a challenge. So I want you to keep your Bible open to this passage tonight, and I'm going to make five observations. I'm going to stop at five key places in this passage. Now, remember the specific context. Paul and his companions took the gospel to Thessalonica. But there's an underlying base here of how people ought to be treated. And as we go through this and think of how we approach people with the gospel or outside of that context in general, this will do us good. Five places. I'm going to stop in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 8. Don't let past wrongs govern you in forming new and current relationships. Here's where I got that, verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I'm going to give you a narration of something that's very common, and you'll immediately recognize it. A person suffers some injustice, the victim of some wrong, as Paul and his companions came into Macedonia at Philippi, where they were jailed. So a person suffers some injustice like that, the victim of some wrong, and maybe they observe some ugly dispute in a family or a church, and from that time on, how they treat people is governed or corrupted by that negative event. I know people who claim to be Christians and who accept no rebuke or warning about no association with any local church or other Christians because, they explain, one time I was hurt. 
One time they didn't treat me right. There were members of a local church and there was an ugly, ungodly dispute that I observed. And so, in my mind, that was it. I've been hurt. I'm a victim. I can't forget it. I'm done. So they raise their voice and their blood pressure goes up when they explain that after that experience, maybe more than one experience, they say, I vowed never to darken the door of a church building again. Have you heard that expression? They were wronged or witnessed some ugly dispute and now that becomes their out. Their excuse to have nothing to do with a local church. They carry a grudge. Not only do they carry a grudge, they pull it out every now and then hit somebody on the head with it. Their general attitude is stuck on a past offense. Is that mature? It would be like saying, if I may illustrate, well, I went to a dentist one time years ago, and it hurt, and he wasn't nice to me, and they charged me too much, so I'm never going to a dentist again. Well, consequences. Maybe your teeth will fall out, or you suffer pain, or disease. What we're talking about is that immature, impulsive, long-standing, but unreasonable reaction to a past offense. There are times when we need dentists, and not all of them are bad. God has said in his word, Christians need each other. We need local churches, and bad experiences in the past offer us no exemption from what God wants. Long-standing bitterness over a past offense is going to hurt one person more than it does anybody else, and that's you or me. When we harbor those grudges and we hold on to that and we keep going back to review it and we bring it up and hit people over the head with it, it's worse for us than for anybody who hears about it. Now, what does that have to do with this passage? Paul says we were not treated well in Philippi. That was part of the province of Macedonia where the Thessalonians were. Paul said, we were not treated well in your province in Macedonia, but we didn't go away, we didn't quit. We came on, we came to you, and we preached the gospel to you with boldness. You know what that is? That's a mark of a good attitude. That's maturity. That's the way you approach people. We must not blame new people for what previous people did to us. We must not blame new people for what previous people did to us. Paul's example and teaching can help us to not carry that grudge around and bitterly whack people over the head with it and cause that grudge to draw us away from what God wants us to do in terms of fellowship. Number two, boldness. Even in conflict, verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Some people would say, I'm going to preach over here, but as soon as there's conflict, I'm gone. I don't like tension. I don't like conflict. 
I don't like people disagreeing with me or being opposed. So I'll preach over here, but if there's any problem, I'm gone. Paul says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Stop here for a moment and define that word boldness. It's not talking down to people. That's arrogance. It is not accomplished by volume and angry countenance. Boldness in the New Testament is about clarity and urgency. About things that really matter. Boldness in the New Testament is about clarity and urgency about those things that really matter. Now sometimes here is our problem. Here is our distraction. We are okay with telling people what the Bible says until there's a little conflict and a little tension, disagreement, opposition, and then we back away. That's what the devil wants us to do. Sometimes we let the devil put a gag order on us, but he has no such authority. Paul and his companions in the Lord's work encountered conflict, persecution, opposition, suffering, and they had to sacrifice day after day. But their attitude was, no matter the cost, no matter the outcome, no matter if we baptize a bunch of people or a few people, we have a task, we have a message, and that's what we're going to do with clarity and urgency in our relationships with people as we shine like lights in the world. Avoid deception. This is obvious even if we didn't have 1 Thessalonians 2. But listen to verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts. Do you know that in Thessalonica, in Macedonia, in other parts of the Roman Empire, it was common for there to be coming through the city charlatans, sorcerers, deceptive swindlers, roaming philosophers seeking money and followers and attention. Paul wants to remind the Thessalonians we were not like those guys. We came to you with no tricks. No empty promises, no begging for money. That brings to our attention something that's fundamental to God's people. It's called integrity. In our dealings with all people, Christians, non-Christians, family, friends, enemies, strangers, co-workers, integrity is our standard. If we are Christians, no error, no impurity, no deceit. We don't make false promises. We don't make stuff up. Rather, we have this strong intention to be people of integrity. Here's how simple this is. Using trickery to capture an audience. Impressing people with theatrics to gain a following. Such tactics never became a part of Paul and his companions' work 
among people who needed to hear the word of God. In modern religious practice, sometimes we see a tendency to push away from the boundaries of integrity and to use theatrics and bait and attractions and motives that defy the principle of biblical integrity. Paul is saying everything we did among you was honest and above board. It was transparent. And this tells us that in all our dealings with people, delivering the gospel are just in general discourse. Our motives and our methods must be pure. You know why? It says in the passage, God tests our hearts. Number four, avoid flattery. Verse five, we never came with words of flattery. Here's what flattery is. It is excessive and insincere praise, especially that is given to further one's own interest. Flattery is excessive and insincere praise, especially that is imparted to further one's own interest. It may consist of compliments that are way exaggerated. It may be praise, attention with an element or tone of charm. If you are a recipient of flattery, at first, it'll make you feel good. But then you need to pause and reflect, is that really true about me? When it goes beyond legitimate encouragement and goodwill, it doesn't nourish you. And it may be you're being set up or charmed or deceived. When Paul and his co-workers came to Macedonia and preached the gospel, this was a tactic they intended to avoid. Whether we are approaching someone to convert them or just dealing with non-Christians or interacting with each other, I hope we know that flattery does not serve us well. Now, kindness, courtesy, patience with people, encouraging people with legitimate compliments, that's all necessary in our relationship. But when we exaggerate and excessively praise and charm people for some perceived advantage, we're not acting as God's people. Finally, number five, always show care and affection with people. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. When we talk to people about the Lord, when we invite people to our services, when we seek to study the Bible with a neighbor, we must make certain they know that we really care. And in all our relationships with each other, whether it is direct personal evangelism or whatever it is, care is fundamental to discipleship. Care is fundamental. You know what it looks like? It looks like the towel that Jesus used 
to wash the disciples' feet. You've often heard this, maybe from me before, though it's not original with me. People don't care what you know until they know you care. People don't care what you know until they know you care. The Thessalonians had been involved in pagan idolatry. We learned that about them back in chapter 1 verse 9. So with that background of worshiping images and imaginary deities and everything that pagan immorality involved, how was it they paid attention to Paul? He cared. If people have a good heart, if people are objective and open and you make it clear that you care about them, that's the best climate for good influence and good teaching. Generally, people do not like glory seekers. We don't like people who cannot shut up praising themselves. The Pharisees, for example, did not endear themselves to the Jewish people. But here's what works far better. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Do you remember? Do you remember this? from Matthew that the Lord said when he sent out his men he said behold I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves he didn't say go out there and prove to people how good and bright and better you are than they are he didn't say go out there and do whatever it takes to increase the numbers and the money. He didn't say tear people up and beat people down and wear people out and make them mad. He said be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In all our dealings with people, in all of our treatment of saints and sinners alike, we must show the qualities of heart and life and real discipleship. Good friend of mine, gospel preacher, Paul Earnhardt once wrote this. We must not handle people as if they were blocks of wood to be axed. Like a surgeon wielding his scalpel, we who take up the sword of the Spirit must feel for the sensitive living flesh we are dealing with and wound no more than necessary to heal and to save. So in the first place, contextually speaking, this is about how Paul and his co-workers approach the people of Thessalonica in much Conflict, But in the second place, in terms of current application, this becomes a good model for every one of us. Clear instruction about how to treat people. Sinners, strangers, neighbors, family, church members, each other. 
with the love of God in our hearts, with determination to follow Jesus Christ, and learn from Paul and other New Testament writers how to watch our attitude, guard our tongue, and treat people with fairness and integrity and care, remembering that in all of this, God is witness. Let's be standing as we sing.